To call Brandon Fields a talented sax player is a huge understatement. Ask anyone who he's collaborated with throughout his amazing career. Quincy, Babyface, Los Lobotomies, Elton John, Earth, Wind & Fire, and Al Jarreau, just to name a few. He's created a reputation that is second to none on the L.A. session and jazz scene. Brandon's amazing sound has carried him beyond sessions to touring with Tower of Power, the Rippingtons, the Dave Weckl Band, and even the chance to play in Barry Manilow's infamous Las Vegas band. Fresh off his latest solo jazz release, One People, he is finding that demand for the best keeps him very busy. Inside Music Cast welcomes Brandon Fields. Hey, Brandon, thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Hey, hey Brandon, it's it's good to welcome a, a transplanted Hoosier. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> Ed, Eddie and I are in Indianapolis, and we understand you're from Indiana. I was born in uh, Marion. Very, oh, that's about, about 45 minutes north of here, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, listen, uh, Brandon, I discovered your music in the 80s, man, when uh, a friend pointed me out to, to your second album, which I have, and uh, The Traveler. And at the time, you know, at the time I was listening to a, a ton of sax players, uh, you know, at that time, Getz and Watanabe and Sanborn, Brecker, you know, the, the list of the guys that were really there, you know, talk to me a little bit about the, the guys. Chances are you were listening to the same guys that I was, you know, so. Well, I think around uh, the early 70s, I started having friends who were exposing me to different sax players, mm-hmm. and I was kind of, you know, stumbling across guys of my own. But uh, I was really inspired by the way that Dave Sanborn and Mike Brecker played together on the first Brecker Brothers album. Yeah. And that really spawned a whole interest in both of their careers. Yeah. And I really loved how they had such strong personalities and their own voices, and yet they still went out and really had names for themselves as studio musicians as well. Yeah. I love that Mike Brecker would show up on the Aerosmith album or, you know, and then it turned around and do a Mel Lewis and Friends hard bop. Mm-hmm, recording, mm-hmm. you know, so that was, uh, you know, a lot of my studying in the mid, mid-70s mid mm-hmm. when I discovered those guys was based on that. And I, of course, you know, throughout time, I've, uh, I'm just fascinated by the entire lineage of sax players, and it's actually caused me to change my setups and modify them, hmm. chase, you know, to go after the sounds that I really heard, you know, guys like Stanley Turrentine on tenor and, and uh, Cannibal Adderley and Alto and just the whole whole gamut of sure. players that I continually am inspired by. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this is a, probably a pretty wide question. You could probably elaborate, but just in a nutshell, what sorts of things have you done to, to change your setup and to change your sound to, to try to capture those, those players and what they were doing? Uh, well, mostly it was the teachings of uh, Joe Allard, who taught a lot of the Pulse Coltrane guys, like Mike Brecker and Dave Liebman. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Oh, and I think Col- Coltrane took some lessons from them too. Hmm. And he was very, very well regarded, and it was a process of loosening up the embouchure and being able to play larger chamber mouthpieces, and thereby get more of the big sound that I was hearing from these players that I was not able to get on the, the smaller chamber mouthpieces. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you were um, young when you and your family moved uh, to Santa Ana from Indiana, and you, you know you were exposed to music at the early age of five. And and who did the exposing to you? Was it your mom <laughs> or dad, or your were your parents musical, or was it some oh, other? Oh, sure were. My yeah. dad was a huge is a huge jazz fan, really? uh-huh. and he had complete collections of guys like George Yald. And when they did those little, they would do these. I guess they were forty fives. Yeah. The sides are 45s, but I think they played at 33, and there were four songs uh-huh. on each record. And so he had complete collections of a couple different artists. Uh, was a big Stan Kenton fan. So, oh, yeah. And he and my mom used to go dancing with, with to these big bands when they would go on their road gigs. Uh-huh. 
So I was exposed to that stuff. My mom was really into tapped. She was a piano player until she had me when she was 19. She was a, a piano major in college. And then, you know, she and my dad married early. And actually, I was in Indiana only for a year, and we left. Mm-hmm. And she started all of us. We've got, I've got four, three younger sisters. She started us all on piano when we were five. Uh, I picked up violin at eight and then started playing alto at ten. But they would really... They just wanted to expose me to as many different instruments as they could, and so their thing was going to garage sales or picking up any cheap instruments they could that were functional, and they would put them on the wall next to my bedroom. Really? And so I'd get home from school, and I would just pick something off the wall and make some noise. (laughs) (laughs) And when it started to resonate, then that was something that kind of took, and so that's what happened with the sax. Well, you know, most most, uh, kids that just make a ton of noise in their rooms or whatever, sometimes uh, their parents would say, say, just get out out in the garage, just shut up, you know. But uh, obviously it was a little different for you because I think they knew the value of those things hanging around, right? Well, they sure did. Yeah. My mom was really amazing because she could. She was listening to what we heard on the radio. Uh-huh. So, and a lot of there was a lot of Beatles going on in the mid '60s when I was, you know, in uh, elementary school and headed to the junior high. And she would go to the library and pick up these albums. I remember her bringing home albums and putting them on reel to reel for me to listen to. And so there was there were a bunch of different Beatles records mm-hmm. and the Supremes, a bunch of Motown recordings, and I would and then she would also go buy the books. So she would pick up those like Hal Leonard Beatles <laughs> cover books, and I would sit at the piano and kind of play them. But I'd already heard them on the radio, so right. she remembers me playing songs and then telling her that mom, this isn't the way it sounds on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> those books were always written really wrong, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, it kind of got me some early ear training and. Very valuable. Well, I got to say, you, you had a pretty cool mom. Yeah, <laughs> really? <laughs> at that time period when a lot of that music was, was you know, in, in some senses, it depends on where you were, I guess, if, you know, uh, uh, if people were closed-minded to it and, you know, people weren't allowing that in their homes. And, and uh, But you know, the fact that your mom was buying that for you and getting you interested was very cool. Yeah, I was exposed to classical literature on some level, but she was really smart, and I try to do this anytime I teach, and it's to, ex- to latch on to whatever interest is there in kids and what mm-hmm. listen to and yeah. try to inspire that. And then it's amazing how much more you can expose people to when, you, when your line of teaching is a long interest. What was the reason, uh, the, the impetus for your family moving to California? Uh, I, yeah, I think they just had it with, <laughs> with the Indiana <laughs> My dad was, I think he had some more ideas uh-huh. That he was able to make happen in other locations. We moved around a little bit when I was a kid. Uh-huh. I didn't didn't end up in Santa Ana until I was in third grade. Oh, okay, okay. So lived in San Diego for a minute. Uh, he he joined the Navy, so we moved around, you know, a little bit. Six right. months in South Carolina, uh, but mo- but he really did try to keep us centrally located. Once we ended up, you know, he was based in Long Beach, and so we settled in Orange County. I see. Well, listen, going back to, to what your mom was doing with hanging the, the instruments on the wall, my question is sort of twofold. One is, obviously, you, you've just explained to us that you've had formal training. I mean, you play the violin and you play the piano, that type of thing. Now, now, sort of, what was the balance there of picking up an instrument, a sax or guitar or whatever, and letting you listen to stuff? Because obviously, the balance of listening to the music and playing a little by ear and the formal training... How did the balancing of those two, I mean, most kids only play sometimes very regimented, 
you play the music and you cannot play outside of those borders. You follow me? Yeah, I think the main key is developing the listening ability. So mm -hmm. if you, again, it goes back to kind of latching on to what kids are listening to and finding a way in and then exposing them to everything. And ultimately, it is going to be on the, the person themselves as to what they take to and don't. I, in my case, I was really lucky that I had a, a radio in my room, and when I would start to play saxophone, I would you know play some of the lessons yeah. in the books, but I was much more excited that once I could make sound come from that instrument <laughs> and emulate what I was hearing and mimic, actually, what I was hearing on the radio, then that was much more powerful to me. Or I saw the value that, you know, that it was, uh, you have to hear it in order to play it. Yep. Well, you eventually uh, ended up in L.A., and you dove right in, I guess you dove right into the club and studio scene, right? Yeah, I came up in 82, I believe, uh -huh. in Orange County. And I had always heard about certain clubs up here, like the Baked Potato, that really featured musicians and instrumental acts and that also were writing their own material. So a lot of original music going on, very inspiring time. There was a lot of, there was still, I would call it the tail end of the studio scene. It wasn't like it was in the 60s and 70s where mm -hmm. almost every network show you saw had a live big band every week. Right, you know, right. New music being recorded, all those old shows like Mannix and Ironside. Yeah, and, yeah. And a lot of times the music really helped the acting. Oh, man. <laughs> You're probably right. <laughs> In a very positive way. I think you've got a very, point there. Uh, very dramatic music, and I, I heard, I mean, I'm much more aware and respectful of these people that were writing and all the work that was going on, because you don't hear it now. Now you hear a lot of canned music, and they're librarying, right. a lot, which means they're recording a lot of music that they'll, they will go back and refer to throughout mm -hmm. the season. So right, less, right. Uh, live music being recorded every week. I think there are only a couple shows. They're both uh, animations, I think, uh, a Family Guy and Simpsons are two of the shows that have live right. bands every week. Yeah, interesting. I did. I actually didn't even know that. Yeah. Um, do you, I'm just curious. Do you remember your first gig and uh, uh, when you got to LA, like maybe one of your first uh, session <laughs> gigs? Uh, no, I don't remember that. So I thought you were going to ask about my very first gig, which I do remember. Oh, what was that? <laughs> they still have a, like a fake check that my dad made for five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> it was the college pep band. <laughs> I love it. I love it. The good old college pep. Yeah, the good old college pep band gig. You know. <laughs> so, so my dad was really great about you kind of documenting these little landmarks in my life. <laughs> <laughs> you have them framed somewhere, right next to those I've wall. Got, I've got it somewhere it's, <laughs> next to the wall file. instruments. <laughs> hey, listen, you. You're pretty much, uh, you know, in your experience, you know, you you can be pretty much a straight up jazz player. You can be a fusion player, an R and B player, or even a pop player. And, and just tell us how you shift gears. You know, when you play for sessions for Quincy, Aretha, I mean, Toto, Stanley Clark, and even Barry Manilow in Vegas. Now, I mean, I mean, you have to shift gears musically. How do you handle this variety of of work? And you know, well, I, the first thing for me is respecting the music that I'm playing. Mm -hmm. So I do try to tap in to whatever it is the artist is hearing, and I try to be an extension of their vision while maintaining my own personality and concept. Now, that's uh, that's an awful lot to, <laughs> to call on within yourself, and right. we're all so used to playing different types of gigs where we develop certain habits and we play certain ways, and when you... Are, you know, then when you have to channel that, and most of it's just experience, so you, you kind of know 
Uh, I, I try to lead, let the music lead me, in other words. I try yeah. not to have too many preconceptions about what I'm doing. Uh-huh. I will say that jazz is the hardest thing for me to get back into if I've been doing a lot of pop gigs yeah. or a lot of, I would say, not to say, the only reference to pop is that they're usually shorter forms of expression. So mm-hmm. usually it'll be like, you know, little fills here yeah, and there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where you're augmenting the storyteller. In jazz music, for an instrumental act, you are the storyteller. Yeah. You know, when I lead my band, I am the singer, and, you know, I'm trying to imagine lyrics mm-hmm. coming out, taking the shape of these notes that come out of my horn, and that's what I hope to communicate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really. So you that's the main thing for an instrumentalist, is that you are the storyteller as opposed to when you're backing a pop act. Right, right. right. Does that change much for... Uh, R&B and that type of thing because it's, it's so much well, more I mean, all, all that stuff is again is driven by the song and uh, the rhythm feel uh, you know for me I, my first playing experiences were playing Latin and funk okay. and those probably were the first musics that I really latched on to the music of Tower of Power yeah. And, uh, in anything funky in like the mid 70s I, I really just kind of ate it up and, mm-hmm. and all the Latin I saw the similarity between the Latin yeah. stuff um, and, and jazz is just an ongoing I feel like that's something I'll play my entire life and learn more about <laughs> and learn more about my connection to jazz and mm-hmm. uh, the variety of swing feels sure. and you know that's something you just you have to live all music yeah. so that's one thing I, I, I think that's also important is you really have to have an affinity for different times. I'm not big on emulating really old styles. If I'm playing funk or Latin or anything, or and jazz, which I think is the common denominator most anything that's got a jazz moniker to it mm-hmm. or a hyphenated <laughs> title, I think that it needs to have a lot of improvisation. I yeah. think it needs mm-hmm. to be born of the moment. Yeah, I think uh, that's why I like the word contemporary jazz as opposed to a lot of other. Mm-hmm. names that people will put on right, right, jazz. right. It's, it's music that and even contemporary jazz may be a little limiting because it is music that's born of all our experience and all the years we spent listening and mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. but it should be an expression of our experience in life yeah and i think it, that's when we're more powerful i don't think we're as powerful when we try to emulate other music or musicians that happened a long time ago. Yeah, you know, I like what you said about jazz being of the moment. You know, you can't right. pl- you can't plan for it. You can't do it. I mean, it it was of the moment. You look, yeah. listen to Coltrane and what those guys were doing, and it, it was the moment. You know, uh, they go into the recording studio, and it, it that's all they capture. You know. Yeah, now, now what I was talking about playing with the radio when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I think that's an art. Mimicking is an art. But as an artist, when you develop, it's when those when all these different influences get thrown in to your psyche, then what comes out is your own voice. And the more that we live and embrace that life, the better we'll be at communicating it. Yeah. You know, a few minutes ago, I, m- I mentioned a short list of people that you've played with, Quincy, Aretha, Toto. And, and speaking of Toto, <laughs> I was twittering with twittering with, uh, with with Steve Lukather the other day. And, oh, yeah. And he sent a message. I don't know that we're going to interview you. And he sent a message uh, for you regarding, regarding your strength of your playing. And this is the message from Luke. 
turn down. <laughs> That's all he said. He says, "Just tell him turn down." You know, so so take that as a little, uh, little, uh, lovely little uh, uh, communication from Luke. No, he said. I, I think that that's a, that's a little inside joke, yeah. Steve and I. I guess it is. You know, <laughs> seriously, he said he has utmost respect and he just loves your playing. So anyway, oh, I, you, you I guys know. He's, he's a guy that I really miss playing with. I wish we could get something else going because. That was my, we were in a band called Los Lobotomies. Exactly, yeah. And I'll tell you, that was, playing with Steve Lukather was one of the, the greatest experiences for me because it, it was kind of the, what I love about the energy of rock and that, that presence and power, and yet he brings so much improvisation to it. And, mm-hmm. you know, and he's not thinking about style. I think yeah. ultimately an artist, if they're more effective, they're not thinking about what their music's called. They're too busy creating it. Right, right. You know, and so I think he's a guy that has all these influences as well. Yeah. And and I I just loved standing next to him and playing melodies. I thought we really had a way to play melodies together. <laughs> it was a great influence for me. I mean, all I think what uh, some sax players, if you get stuck in different styles, you lose all the depth of dynamic contrast. You know, so I think it's really powerful to play loud. It's powerful to play soft, and it's the ultimate power when you can do both and, <laughs> and have that happen within the space of a performance. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of uh, low lobotomies, you just mentioned them. You, you were one of the original members of that band, which uh, and I think you were on their first album. You know, back in yeah. the late '80s. And you know, low lobotomies for people who don't know that band, uh, they were essentially an offshoot of, of, I think, of David Garfield's band Charisma. Yeah. And it was uh, Steve Lukather, I think, who approached those guys and, and wanted to play mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. with them in a live setting. Thus, you know, the new band formed, and and uh, and it was an amazing band at the beginning. There were several players. You know, it was Luke. It was it was you. It was it was Creechy. Uh, you know, David Garfield, yeah. uh, Jeff Percaro, Nathan East, Vinnie Caliuta was involved, Lenny Castro. Yeah. I mean, how did you get involved with these guys? And I, I understand that Tuesday nights at the Baked Potato in L.A. became a madhouse with lines <laughs> down the block when you guys uh, did gigs there. Oh boy, that was really amazing. And that was, you know, it wasn't due to the sax player. That was the power of some of the guys <laughs> that had, you know, involved in these very uh, well-known, high-profile bands. Yeah. Uh, but we really did have a thing. I, I think yeah. it was a very, very special thing we had as a group. Mm-hmm. And there were revolving rhythm sections when I first got involved, and it was all through David Garfield. He was, you know, he was, became a friend of mine. I think in '82. Somewhere around there, we we played occasionally. I I got him to come down to a couple great little clubs in Orange County, where I had where I was doing, you know, starting to play my own music and and try to get you know in, integrated in the LA scene by playing with some of the local players up here. Mm-hmm. So he came down there and played a little bit, and then he got me into the Baked Potato uh-huh. to play with Charisma the very first time in '83, and that led to me booking my own band there. Cool. And he was involved in my first two records, and then he co-produced my third record. So we've had a long history together, and he's really a a, a great talent and a very prolific as a mm-hmm. band leader and. Yeah, and writer, and I have a lot of respect for him. Uh, two CDs that don't leave my well, I believe it or not, I still have a CD changer in my car. But um, two CDs that don't leave. One is the Los Lobotomies, the first one, the live one. Yeah. The, the other one is Charisma's Document. And did you play on Document? Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't think so. I that think, was a, is, is that a live record? That's from, another live record as well. Europe. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a four piece with uh, right, right. John Pena and Simon Phillips, if I believe. Right. I couldn't remember if you were. Or, or maybe that's the one with. Uh, it's uh, Vinny. Stupenhouse and Vinny. Yeah, it's Vinny and Stupenhouse, right. Okay, yeah. 
Yeah, those are two just amazing albums, and I, I love them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, Brandon, your your list of collaborations is it's it's long, and and uh, if if we went through the whole thing, we'd be here forever. But let's talk about a couple of the of the tours and sessions that you've contributed to. So sure. I'm going to go down a list, and maybe you give me your comments. You toured with uh, Tower of Power, of course, with Emilio Castillo and uh, and Doc. Yeah, and tell us a little bit uh, about uh, playing with these guys, amazing horn players, man. Well, I will say that. To this day, I don't think I've ever gotten chills walking on stage <laughs> to do a sound check for the very first time with anybody but Tower of Power. Yeah. And that was, I mean, that music, I mean, what is hip, I think, is still a, good, oh, yeah. is a timeless piece. Yeah, yeah. And, and all that stuff, when I was in high school, I, I think, I guess I was a junior or senior when the What Is Hip album came out. And I'll tell you, we just—I had friends that, that turned me onto that, and we just ate that up. Yeah. And so I was, re- and I was starting to play in top forty bands, and we would try to learn some of that music, and I couldn't really hear all the parts. And right. I learned later, after you know, playing with them and playing with Greg Adams, a great arranger, mm-hmm. is that the, you know they, how they would voice it and change it on the overdub and all that stuff. So it was, but I will tell you that I flew into Oakland by myself, and it was it was really cool because Lee Thornburg great trumpet player and friend of mine, he was on the gig, and we had done some sessions in town, and so they had a situation come up where the sax player, I think it was Steve Grove at that time, could not make a gig, and so they asked him, you know, they are just tossing around names, and Lee just, you know, threw my name into the hat and said, you know, you should call this guy, and so they just sent me the charts and tapes, and with no rehearsal, which I love doing, and so I was on it, and I, I showed, I flew up to Oakland, they picked me up, and we went straight to a sound check, and then next thing I'm walking on stage, and we're running soul vaccination, <laughs> and uh, put his hip with this band on stage, and I just got, I just broke out in goosebumps all over. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same. Eddie and I went up to uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, like I don't know what was that, three or four years ago, yeah, right. and we saw Tower of Power play up there, and. I, you know, I, I love all that stuff, the high energy stuff. I mean, that, their show is is. Um, <laughs> You know, those guys have been around for 30-plus years, and, they, and you're right. It still puts chills down your spine when you hear them play. Oh, it's and, just, uh, and I'm the oh. kind of—I I love that song, uh, uh, so, very, so Very Hard to Go. Yeah. And I, I hear that, and it's like I could leave happy. You know, if they just went out and oh, played yeah. that and I walked out, I'd be happy. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really amazing. I didn't talk—I did my last gig with them. I never joined the band because I had my own records at the time. And, yeah. And there wasn't that—you know, the work was such that I still had—there was a lot of studio work, so there were a lot of reasons for me to stay in L.A., and not travel as much, but mm-hmm. I really did love the band. Mm-hmm. And, but I, out of respect for their thing too, because you don't go into Tower of Power, you know, unless you love it, <laughs> you right? Do, right. You better, you know, because if you try to go in there and change something or make it <laughs> something that's different, that's oh, yeah. not going to work, right? Exactly. You know? But I, uh, I mean, of all the bands that they, you know, do what they do year in and year out, and it's just still exciting, and the concept is so timeless. Did I, I hear the way they play parts and involve the singers and the horn players yeah. and soloists? It's really great. Did I hear you say just a couple seconds ago that you love getting a chart, not rehearsing, and having to jump into the water just cold? Yeah. Are you nuts? I love, I love that. I mean, well, especially, I should preface that by saying, if, it's, if, it's, if they're songs I know. Now, yeah. you know, if I'm playing with really complicated instrumental groups that are, you know, like Billy Childs, I would not do that with. Right. <laughs> Billy Childs I want to rehearse with. No doubt. Know, he's another just amazing musician friend of mine that I just respect. Yeah, you know, uh, for what he's done and his classical and jazz approaches, and he writes a lot more demanding, more soloistic stuff. Yeah. Power, power. You know, I, I learn the parts and 
and you can go up there and, yeah. and all the solos are not on hard changes. Yeah. You know, it's pretty blues. Yeah. You know, pretty straight and up. Modal. So that, so that's you know it's an easier thing. Yeah, it's a found, it's, it's found, walking cold. Yeah, you're right. You're, you're laying the foundation for those guys to loosen up and do whatever they do. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's also that there's just this energy that happens that way. That it's like walking into a studio session and you know pulling your horn out and you know getting a sound and then running the tape and that's what goes. That's <laughs> what you know, when you get a first taker, that's one of the best feelings. Yeah, that's cool. You know, and, and uh, so yeah, so I've had a lot of those too that are yeah. very special to me because I think there's so much power in early first impressions. Right. You also toured with George Benson in the mid '80s. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was a that great was the, band. The 2020 album. Who who was? Uh, do you remember the band that traveled? Uh, yeah, there back was actually then? there were a bunch of clips on YouTube of that band of the first year that I did. Who was the bassist? Wasn't he a big guy? Uh, well, that's Stanley Banks. Stanley okay. Banks has been on the. He's been with George since I believe. Uh, before the Breezen record. Okay. Because uh, this was the 2020 tour. Right? Yeah, uh, we didn't know the albums yeah, as okay. much as we knew just his whole catalog of music. Right. And okay. yeah. George was a guy that, you know, we we were all we were all fairly confident. You know, we were all we all led our own bands. A lot of the guys. I was recommended by Dave Boroff, who hmm. had played sax. He also got me on the Joan Rivers show. And uh, he and Randy Waldman had left. George Benson's band, so they were, you know, they were looking for replacements. I went on there and replaced Dave, and it was with Steve Tavaloni, who was an amazing sax player, a friend of mine, and Ralph Rickard, a great trumpet player. So we were the horn section. Uh, you know, we toured quite a bit. There was just, there wasn't very much soloing with that band. That was the only thing that we mm-hmm. were kind of, you know, a, a little, we, man, we're playing with George Benson and there's hardly any solos. <laughs> you know, and it's a jazz group. You know, we're playing these jazz festivals and, right. you know, there's not much. We, so Steve and I would switch solos from night to, there was one sax solo on one leg of the tour yeah. that, was, you know, just kept popping up in the, the set list. So, but it was only one solo, and Steve and I both loved each other's playing, so we would just swap solos night after night. <laughs> okay, your turn. Sometimes he would look up, one time he looked up and he announced Steve as me, <laughs> and then the next night he, we, 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 you know, just flipped it around, and then he did the exact opposite, he introduced me as Steve. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That is funny. <laughs> Whoever noticed, you know? You know, and he, he'd be down, he, he would come in after we'd been on stage, doing sound checks and he would play the most burning bebop he would play all all those songs that he played with Freddie Hubbard uh, Skydive and uh, Spirits of Train he, he would just you know play so much like during sound check and they were maybe some of the most fun sound checks I was ever involved in yeah you know and then, and then his, his set was great too but he always has had this you know it's, it's half pop half jazz and he, he is one of the true talents I don't know if there's anybody today that kind of, in my mind, carries forward the tradition of Charlie Parker, the way that he phrases his, his guitar licks. Mm-hmm. Uh, not licks, but the way he phrases his performance. Yeah. Right. Kind of, it just, he just flies. Yeah. He really is so fluid on guitar. Mm-hmm. And he scats the same way. I've heard him out oh, it's amazing. so many like dedicated, I would, you know, he's, he's a dedicated singer, but you know who I mean, like singers, that's all they do. But he's a guitar player slash singer, and he's just amazing. Yeah. Another band uh, that you've had experience with is Earth, Wind, and Fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did two weeks with them in 95, again, uh-huh. filling in for a sax player that had a double book tour. That was in 95. Was Maurice White still with them at that point? I was on his last tour. Oh, okay. Wow. All right. That was, he, as far as I know, yeah. he, uh, he, he stopped touring at, right after that. Uh-huh. I just had a chance to see him in concert a couple of weeks ago with Chicago, and uh, I miss... Maurice up there, but but man, yeah. that, those guys still wail. I mean, it's just they're phenomenal. It's amazing. Yeah, he he really is the 
soul, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, direction of that band, I, I feel. Well, he just doesn't tour with them. I know he's still involved in writing and producing, and, and, and you know, he's in the studio with them, but he I just I believe so. I, I yeah. played on the last album. I think it was the last album, but I, I, mm-hmm. I haven't really heard it, so I don't know. Yeah. How it came out, uh, I you know that, that's another band with just a great catalog. Mm-hmm. You could be on stage and you're playing all these songs, and you just you know you can't help but smile. Right. Yeah. Another collaboration was with uh, Dave Weckl, who's, yeah, who's an amazing fusion drummer. But you played with him for for a while. Uh, yeah, well, was, I, I was in his band for about four years, I think, from maybe ninety nine to two thousand three. Yeah, he had just come off of playing with uh, with Chick. Uh, yeah, and he still would go back and do little tours with Chick. I believe at that point they had an acoustic band, you know, and Chick is a, another just prolific guy, and he's always got different irons in the fire with different combinations of players. Mm-hmm. Uh, but playing with Dave was really, uh, that kind of, I, I would tell people that playing with Dave was the most significant step upward in my ability mm-hmm. to play night after night and play longer solos and really get my storytelling together. Yeah. You know, because you had to. It was, you know, it's like a four-piece band, and it was really on a high level of intensity, and, you know, you had to deliver every night. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Which was really great. Yeah, and then we also wanted to talk about one more, a very uh, interesting and yet prestigious gig that you do in Vegas, I think since 2006. You've played in uh, Barry Manilow's show at the Hilton. Uh, I've been doing that since uh, June of 06. Yeah, wow, that's neat. How, how did you land that gig? How did you get connected with uh, with Barry? Uh, that was through Russ McKinnon, who was the drummer on Tower of Power when I did it in 91, hmm. 92. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Russ got me on there after they had made a change or were making a change in the uh, sax chair. Mm-hmm. He recommended me. And, uh, it was, it's been great. It's a great bunch of guys. Barry's a great guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is quite a, a deep catalog himself. You know, I mean, he's really... I think an excellent arranger, respect what he does. There's not very much space, you know, for my personality to come out solo-wise. In sure, right. But, uh, you know, I, I'll tell you, it is such a stellar group of musicians, and I have such... His work ethic is, like, beyond none. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, how the dedication that he has uh, to writing, and you can just see his eyes light up when he starts to arrange something or gets uh, these great ideas that he has for the presentation. He's probably the most uh, maybe musical-slash-theater guy that I've ever worked with in the sense that he always has the effect of visual and sound. Yeah, yeah he's you know, definitely... So, so uh, this presentation, uh, to, you know, which you would call a show. Right, sure, sure. <laughs> you know, and he has this great staging, and he's he's just really aware of all those different ways to present and communicate his art to people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and th- so that's been a new thing and a really positive learning experience because most of the people I, you know, most of the jazz groups I work with is, you know, you go out and play. Yeah. Everything is not considered costuming and yeah. staging and all that. This seems so interesting because, you know, it, it seems so atypical for an opportunity for a straight-up jazz player that's, you know, to, to land a gig like this and, and really, you know, go for the duration because it is, like you said, a Vegas show, you know? Yeah. It's not a touring concert, that type of thing. So, so I mean, with a show, with all the, you know, the the feathers and whatever, lighting, and and I haven't seen the show, but I've, 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 I've known some people that have gone. I know one yeah. guy who said that it was just, you know, he went there thinking, okay, great, I'm going to hear Mandy again or whatever, you know, and by the time you know it, he was, he came back, he told me it was just phenomenal, you know. Well, I tell you, I think a lot of uh, jazz players 
could learn a lot of lessons from Barry's presentation of music. The the amount of segues and uh, medleys and how to how to really squeeze a lot of music in to, and every other aspect of it, all the visuals in, in that amount of time. Like I think it's you know an hour fifteen to an hour and a half show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he really presents a lot of humanity through his music in the space of you know an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And I and that's something I continually learn about and respect and he's it's also it's been great for my flute playing you know it's about 70 percent flute at this point wow really it's really gotten me off my butt (laughs) 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 to to be a better flute player and uh you know and i play alto and soprano on that gig also and it's a like i said a great bunch of musicians so the other skill that you know is always in demand is ensemble playing and that's Uh when you're able to play with players whether it's going back to what you were talking about how do you go play so many different types of music well a big part of that is is the people you're playing with and how you interact and can play if you can play in tune and in time and with respect to the style and the artist I think you got it you know you'll have it so and, and it's not that demanding of a schedule you know, I come home on my off days from Vegas, and I can shed. That's the only thing I don't like about that gig in Vegas is that I can't practice as much as I like in the mm-hmm. hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't. I can't really work on my stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. But it's been good for my writing. You know, you have to, we have to channel our art however we can. I guess so. And be really uh, appreciative of these opportunities because this is really a great opportunity for me, and, yeah. and he's done a lot for me. Uh, you know, personally. So, how long can this? Manilow show go on? I mean, what do you anticipate? What do you see for that? Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't really try to have any, uh, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. If it ended tomorrow, then I'm, I'm back doing my thing full time. We've been off for almost two months. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, no, that's not true. We, we went out and did an are- two arena shows, but we've been off from Vegas for two months. Yeah. And we'll go back there at the end of July. And it was three, and now I'm starting to book some, some of my own gigs cool. on like after the show on Friday nights, I've got a little place to play there. So, you know, you take all these opportunities and you, you fly with them. Are, are you ever in Vegas on a Monday night? Uh, occasionally. I've gone in and sat in with uh, Santa Fe. I was, I was just going to ask. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's some shots of me playing with them on the web. Oh, yeah. Ah, yeah. That's cool. I know their manager, Bobby G, and I, I visited him uh, in Vegas a couple of years ago, and he, or was this the last year, actually, and, and uh, sat with him at his table, and he introduced me to the band, and man, they are, what a killer band. It's a killer band, and boy, I tell you, Nathan Tenoy is one of my favorite horn arrangers. Mm-hmm. That guy is he's a great trombonist. And he he really has written some stellar arrangements. I've gone out and done a couple big bands that mm-hmm. he's written for as well. I want to get uh, Jerry Lopez on our show one of these days. Yeah, Jerry's great. Yeah, well, that's cool. Um, and it's great when I show up there, and he's literally called me from the audience. You know, <laughs> from the audience with my horn out, nothing preconceived about what we're going to do. Yeah. You know, and, and he'll just throw me into the fire. Yeah, the night I was there, he called somebody out of the audience and said, get up here and play. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, that's cool. <laughs> Yeah, um, and then uh, for all of you who are interested in seeing Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns, they play at the Palms every Monday night, and the show is free. So yeah. it's it's an amazing experience for a free show, and it's it's a, like a good hour and a half show. 
But anyway, um, let's talk about your band for a second, the Brandon Fields Band. Uh-huh. And that's included uh, some great L.A. players since, you know, like 84, including guys like Jeff Babco and Jimmy Johnson, Walt Fowler, Mitch Foreman. Yeah. You know, and guys like Erskine, Vinny Caliuta, Tom Breckline, Abe Laboreal, Carlos Vega, Mike Landau. I mean, just yeah, that's a who's who in my book, you know. Yeah, I, I do love great players. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do. I try to give everybody, uh, you know, I like to present a... a Palette where everybody brings, where everybody feels their personalities are really required. Mm-hmm. You know, where the, whatever their interpretive abilities are, and for them to to come in and really contribute their own personalities to the project. Sure, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you're you're right. What an amazing group of guys to to record with. But I want to yeah. sort of focus on two musicians that have contributed to your last solo release as the Brandon Fields Trio, and the tri- of course the album, the project's called One People. Yeah. They are, of course, drummer Gary Novak and the late Dave Carpenter on bass. So, you know, first tell us about the concept of, of you doing a trio project and how the three of you came together for this uh, this straight up jazz project that uh, was just released earlier this year. Well, it, it happened because Gary's got a great studio in Burbank, uh-huh. and we'd played a lot together, and, and we'd played as a trio at the Baked Potato. I, I don't remember how that came into being. I think it was under Carp's uh, suggestion that we should do a trio gig, and I've oh, I've kind of stared away from them because I don't... That's one of the deepest gigs you'll walk into as a sax player, to be that responsible for the harmony, and it's made me a better player, and... Uh, but you really, you know, to be really effective in that format, you have to be deeper. <laughs> you really have to, you know, cover a lot of ground. And, you know, there are, I think like I wrote, there are some big shoes to fill, traditionally. And more, you know, the Sonny Rollins trio, uh-huh. uh, like Live Village Vanguard. And, and they're just uh, people that do it all the time. Right. So I've never been that confident in that format. But what I have been more confident in is when we do it more electric, which which actually coincided with Dave's desire to to really feature his abilities on the six string bass, yeah. which are quite phenomenal. I mean, yeah. what what he what he did on that instrument w- was truly unique. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people know him as an amazing acoustic bass player, and he was, but he w- was that much, and maybe even a, a a deeper additional part of his personality was how he could accompany artists with chordal ability on the six-string bass. Yeah. You know, uh, your you point just saying that it was a six-string electric bass. And yeah. And on the track Inner Urge, his chordings, man, are... I mean, the almost there was there was a, a small short portion of the of the recording that it almost his phrasings mimicked a Gibson guitar, man. Yeah. And I'm like, overall, you know, this guy. I'm like, what's he doing with this? Yeah, thing? while you know, he's like, walking underneath. I mean, yeah. there there are really it's it's quite stunning. It, it, it <laughs> like, blew my mind, and he did yeah. that on another track uh, on Longing, also. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would imagine by now this conversation is probably piquing the interest of some of our listeners. So let's take a quick break and check out this track by the Brandon Fields Trio and titled Enter Urge, and this is from the album One People. Thank you. 
a sample of the track Inner Urge by our guest today, Brandon Fields, and this is from the album One People by the Brandon Fields Trio, which also includes Gary Novak and Dave Carpenter. For, for those that are listening, I, I really recommend this this album for for everyone. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's really a masterpiece of three musicians that are coming in together, and they both, you know, all three have their, their, their limelight, and when Dave goes loose, man, I, I'm... You know, how tightly, tell, tell me a little bit about uh, how tightly did you control the session, you know, where they oh, wanted they, to they go. Not, it was probably, well, first of all, it wasn't an organized album. Okay. We, we got together, like I said, after playing The Big Potato, mm-hmm. and Gary said, hey, let's come over and we'll play. So we first started playing, I believe I wrote this in the liner notes, I can't remember exactly what I wrote, okay. but uh, we got together and just we started playing song, uh, standards and jazz tunes. You know, some of the stuff we play live. And then as we got into it, we started, you know, digging up more of the the originals. So, and, and as we did that, and as, as more of them were mine, we just kind of sat down uh, after maybe the fifth, fourth or fifth time we've gotten together. We had, we still have a lot of outtakes from mm-hmm. every session we did. But right. as we as we did it, we kind of look and see, okay, what do we want to go back and re, you know, revisit and do another performance of this tune. They're all, almost every recording on that CD is a first take. Yeah, wow. I believe. Jeez. And, uh, there was a little bit of editing that I did, uh, Justin, but very slight. Yeah. You know, just to, so it was really uh, so that we can capture all the freedom. Right. You know, we really went in there and played. There were almost no preconceived notions except when we were playing off an arrangement of something we had done, like we knew what we were going to do on One People, the title track, right. when uh, when 
you know, Gary, when they shift an up-tempo hard bop four mm-hmm. after playing the first part of the song at three, right. you know, that kind of stuff was we had worked out. But a lot of the other things would just happen magically, uh, like Dave's unaccompanied solo after the sax solo on One People and how he and Gary play up to the vamp section, and then Dave just goes off. Yeah, he goes uh, off. We, we would call it bass odyssey, you know, just like the, the spinal tap. Yeah, exactly. You I know, think it was a spinal tap line. <laughs> you know, as a bassist, Dave Carpenter, he, he was sort of a guy, he was sort of under the radar, you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, well, he contributed so much, and uh, he's another guy that he was always on me to learn more tunes, hmm. and rightly so, because we, you know, we all need as much as we can it helps us play with more musicians yeah and he and he himself i mean just embraced so much music he more than anybody else i know knew so many jazz tunes and standards like show tunes as well but he also knew almost uh, a, a lot of rock tunes and pop songs wow. you know i mean and he knew them i mean he he when I say no, it's not like a sax player doing something. Oh. He can play the melody and you know some of the some of the changes. Yeah. But he really knew the tunes. Well, he was bit really busy in L.A. and he passed away last last June. Yeah. But uh, this has been such a, a hard thing for you. I mean, just after recording with him. Yeah. Well, we we started that recording in December of 2005, I believe, and recorded, and then you know before I got the Barry gig, I was just you know I was working a lot just doing my thing here in L.A. And as I started to, you know, reap some of the financial benefits of uh, more steady work, then I was able to go back and readdress this because it is on my label. And we just kind of decided that uh, we, we really felt it was important to release this. And Gary and I, so, you know, with Gary's help, we really wanted to finish it up. Yeah. Speaking of Gary Novak, he's a, he's a Chicago guy who's played with uh, you know guys like Joe Williams and Louis Belson, and uh, I think he did his first road gig with Maynard Ferguson. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's. I think he was playing jazz trio with his dad when he was three or something. Wow. Jeez. Wow. <laughs> I'm not sure how accurate that is, but it, it sounds like Gary. You know, he's really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody has ever flown as long with me on extended solos <laughs> as Gary. <laughs> I mean, he he can really. He could just take you to another level. Wow. That uh, it's that it's too rare. Yeah. And we have uh, one more track from the One People album that we wanted to take a listen to. This is a track entitled Longing, and this is from our guest today, Brandon Fields, and his collaboration with Gary Novak and Dave Carpenter, the Brandon Fields Trio. Thank you. 
and that was a sample of the track Longing by the Brandon Fields Trio and our guest today, Brandon Fields. Well, you've recorded, I think, about 10 albums to date and three that are uh, more themed albums, uh, you know, like uh, A Coffee House Christmas, Higher Ground. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, tell us a little bit about those. Uh, well, Coffee House Christmas just came out of a really simple desire to do a, a Christmas record, to do it at home, mm-hmm. and to knock it out in one day. It's a great project. So it's... we actually did it. It's kind of funny because Luis, who plays percussion on it, he actually had to step out to do a session in the middle of the day. <laughs> so we started recording in my studio, and Steve Cardenas and Dave Carpenter and I, and Luis would just leave. And we, then the two that he was gone, those are the trio cuts without Luis. And then Luis came back, and then, <laughs> then he's back on the record. <laughs> I love it. Nobody so, ever noticed, you know? <laughs> it's really funny. And then we, I think there's one uh, just guitar and sax piece. Uh, Steve Cardin is a beautiful player that I haven't talked to in way too long. But uh, that was a really fun project because, again, we, there were kind of head arrangements. And I talked about certain things, you know, conceptually I wanted to do uh, Silent Night, like in a silent way, the Miles Davis tune. Mm-hmm. Or actually, it's Alan tune, but it's from the Miles Davis recording. Very free and ethereal, you know, with a movable, you know, just all rubato. Mm-hmm. So, and and then, we, you know, we talk about different grooves for different songs, and that, that kind of, you know, played out that way. The Stevie Wonder Project yeah. was a different kind of thing because they originally wanted me to do a Motown record uh-huh. and I went out and got a compilation and I could really only felt like I could really sell four or six songs out of the whole package mm-hmm. you know because mo- a lot of those my favorite Motown songs were constructed for multiple male voices in the case of Tem- Temptations or Jackson 5 uh-huh. or you know were things I've heard done by other artists I didn't feel like I'd really bring something special or different enough to it uh but uh, but I said I got back to the the producer and I said or the executive producer and I said look I'm having a hard time with all these Motown tunes but if you want to do an album of Stevie Wonder songs <laughs> there's twelve off the top of my head <laughs> and they because I've been a huge Stevie Wonder fan yeah. ever since I was stealing my sister's LP of uh, Talking Book yeah. and uh-huh. taking it down you know listen to it in my own stereo mm-hmm. and uh, yeah that was re- I could do another one you know tomorrow. Jeez. But that that project, in contrast to the Christmas project, was you know they were very much more um, thoroughly arranged, and you know it was more care taken to the individual treatment of the songs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In in our last uh, interview, uh, we interviewed Michael Sambello, who had deep roots with uh, um, with Stevie Wonder. He sure did. And uh, it's just funny you're saying that as to the collaborations of and just the, just the influence that Stevie had on so many types of players. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. yeah. I just posted something on my Facebook page of him in a duet with Tony Bennett singing for once in my life. Yeah. Oh yeah. A ballad for it's amazing. <laughs> Just amazing. I have to check that out. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of these little, you know, collaborations between people. There's one of, there's a great one of Mike Brecker and Bobby McFerrin. Interesting. You know, yeah, Bobby is there. Bobby's learned his tune Safari, and there, mm. <laughs> a, a great live, just off the cuff performance. Well, speaking of Facebook, I, I noticed uh, on your MySpace page there's a great video of a performance with uh, Simon Phillips and keyboardist Jeff Babco. Yeah, tell I us, love that man. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that gig. I mean, where was it, and how often do you perform with those guys? Well, that was I, I think we did the first record maybe 2001, 
mm-hmm. somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. So it must have been a little before that because we went to Europe, I think, in 2001 for an 11 day tour. But uh, it was something Simon uh, and Jeff kind of put together. So it's, it's under their name. And mm-hmm. uh, it's Walt Fowler and I. Walt Fowler is, you know, is one of my favorite musicians oh, yeah. to play with yeah. in the world. And I really feel like we have, you know, a great, special thing we play together. And, uh, and also, Dave Carpenter was involved. Oh, okay. And and so it's very much in a style of like, like the, you know, uh, uh, Hal Galper band, uh, you know, the hard bop tradition of uh, the Reach Out album and stuff like that, and and Art Blakey, mm-hmm. you know, and Simon ha- is really a great avenue for Simon to play that because he plays that music really great. Mm-hmm. And he plays everything great. He's amazing. But, but uh, you know, it, it just great personalities again with all these guys. Jeff uh, plays with me a lot. He'll be playing with me, uh, actually, in all my upcoming gigs under my name. And he's really a talented guy. Oh, yeah. He keeps reminding me that he was going over to hear me when he was a kid. His dad would take a picture of me. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I used to be the young guy all the time, and now, and now I'm not. Oh, how time changes the situation there, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, he's he's also been a guest on our show, and, and I actually met him the first time uh, in the studio with with Steve Lukather. I went out and I sat in a couple days with Luke when he was recording his last album. And oh, to, great! And Bab, it was I just happened to be there on a day when Babco was in the in the studio, and he uh, he's just amazing. He he laid down nine tracks in one day, you know, from yeah. like an eight to six sort of thing, and and uh, they just you know it's about a track an hour that he was yeah. knocking out all these parts and just I mean Luke Luke didn't have anything to say. He was just flawless. <laughs> he, you know, he's like great next. You know? Yeah, <laughs> he's he's a talent, no doubt. Oh, he sure is. Hey, you've traveled so much, and um, in in fact, this past year you toured Germany and Hungary. And yeah. my 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 comment is, what the heck is you know what is, is the appetite for Eastern Europeans? What does it come to for jazz and fusion? They devour it, you know. Well, this uh, this particular project in Hungary came about through uh, their desire for you know these guys were doing a techno project. Yeah, the Loop Doctors. You know, yeah, the Loop Doctors uh-huh. in Budapest, and they had done these records that featured a lot of you know high energy loops. And they were looking for, you know, the right kind of guy for them, you know, to for the sax book for their for the sax chair. And they found me, and they were interested. So we started talking, and I dug the music and the presentation. And they actually go on stage as a trio, for the most part. Yeah. And the, the drummer's triggering these loops, most of which are really cool Gary Willis performances right. on the record. You know, and uh, Gary lives in Barcelona, so I told him once, I said, man, we just got to get Gary to play with us. <laughs> It'd be great, but really interesting and diverse music, and boy, I mean, that's another situation where you just got to be on uh, all the time. You just, you know, you, the, horn, the horn is in your face a lot when you're doing trio. Oh, no doubt. You know, the two, basically, the masterminds between, uh, on the the Loop Doctors are Aaron Romiani in, on yes. keys and yes. Peter uh, uh, Zendorfi on drums. And there, I, if I'm, I don't have my notes here, but uh, if I'm correct, I saw a YouTube clip of you, your performance with these guys. Yeah. And that is um, amazing. I mean, you go on and on, and, th- and these guys are just going at it with you, you know? Yeah. And I thought that was a really, really cool performance. I'm glad it was captured, you know? Yeah, they're really great guys. And I forgot to include there's a video guy on the last time I was, this most recent time I was over there that toured with us as well. Yeah. Really talented you know. guy, and, and he'd be interactive. <laughs> you know, the funniest thing, in bringing up that YouTube uh, video, um, one of the funniest posts <laughs> on that is from a Hungarian girl who calls you Brandoon. <laughs> Brandoon? <laughs> yeah, she calls you Brandoon. 
you know, she says, oh, good job, I guess Brandoon, you know. So I'm like, I started cracking up. I'm like, it's not Brandon, it's Brandoon, you know. <laughs> so it, anyway, I thought that was pretty funny. You got to go back there and at least check the video thread, you know. Yeah, I'm going to have to go And back check it out. It'll, it'll make you laugh, you know. Uh, hey, I'm also a f- huge fan of a lot of la- Latino music. And, yeah, uh, me too. And uh, Alejandro Sanz is uh, one of, uh, gee whiz, my girls, uh, to my two teenagers, they're into that. But you received a Grammy when you worked on his album, uh, I Isolo me, me, me Ocurre Amarte. That's the that's Spanish for. Very well it says, it's it, Basically, the translation is, is, is um, and it just occurs to me to love you, you know. So it's a great track. Tell me a little bit about your work with him. I really can't tell you because I never heard the record. Really? <laughs> <laughs> you did not. I'm going to have to send it to you, man. Uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've looked for it a couple times. I've that's never funny. seen it anywhere. Well, it anyway. was the funniest thing when, oh my God. you know, UPS showed up with his delivery and it opened up. It's, it's, a, gra- it's a Latin Grammy. For, for uh, that's funny. So gotta, I love telling people the story that, yeah, I got a Grammy and I never even heard the never, final product. <laughs> I've never heard of that. Reminds me of, reminds All me of I remember that. doing is, you know, we showed up down there. That was a great international band. Yeah. And uh, we went down. That was in, uh, well, it happened right when 9 11. Yeah, right around 2001. The time. Yeah. So, um, we actually postponed everything, came home, and then went back down a, a few weeks later to Miami. Yeah. Where, uh, and we were working at Criterion Studios, which is a you know, historical sure. studio where um, uh, you know, they recorded a lot of the Miami Sound Machine stuff. And then we ended up going and doing this live gig that they filmed, and this is what, this is what the performance is. That's what yeah. the, the CD or DVD is, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so I don't remember that much about it. Harry Kim wrote some really nice charts. Yeah. And uh, I loved his kind of bohemian uh, approach. Yeah, isn't that funny? You know, to uh, a lot of these. And I, and I really liked that it was an international band. Yeah. People from all over. Well, your music was heard all over the world because this guy is truly international within the Latino, uh, yeah. Latin uh, countries, you know? So. Yeah, oh boy, those guys. I mean, if you, that's why some of these artists are so huge because you've got all of South America and. Mm-hmm. You know the, the amount of the world that's uh, Spanish speaking, and you know could understand the lyrics like I can't. What <laughs> <laughs> titles of songs? <laughs> but you know, I, I just think of it like instrumental music with very well shaped notes. Yeah. <laughs> You know, something else you've done, you know, not only have you done, like, lots of session work, studio work, touring, but you've also have an extensive experience playing on film soundtracks and television work. And some of the movies that you've, uh, your, your music or your work has appeared on are, like, Austin Powers, The, the Spy Who Shagged Me, uh, Class Action, Bull Durham, Waiting to Exhale, uh, Dream Girls, and, and yeah. probably several more. Um, do you enjoy that experience as well? I do. I like those performances, those experiences more when they're... Uh, they're more spontaneous, you know, and it's not too much work. You're not trying to chase. Usually when they want you, you know, I mean, right, every experience, right. of course, is going to be better when they're, they've actually called you because they want you and not because they want a sax player. Yeah, right. Exactly. So that's, you know, that's a given. So I have really enjoyed working with a bunch of different composers. I had a blast doing the Austin Powers thing, <laughs> you know, just playing this little scene, and I didn't, I didn't have the visual to go along with it, but then when I see it and I see that it's, uh, you know, Mike Myers' <laughs> seduction of Heather Graham. <laughs> oh, that's you. For me personally. <laughs> oh, that's you that did that, did, uh, that scene. Huh? That, that little smoky tenor thing. Out of the, that's right, uh, right. Movie. Yeah, and hey. then, you know, then there's the kitchen sex scene with uh, Susan Sarandon and Kevin Costner. <laughs> oh, and Bull Durham, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so those are good moments. See, I, I do love the end title of uh, Dream Girls. I think I, I don't remember if I played the melody on that or something. Uh-huh. It's, uh, as the film's going out, right. that's a good spot. Well, you also take credit for performances on, if I'm correct, this is Jeopardy and the Wheel of Fortune themes. Oh yeah, yeah, Dude. no kidding. I I wasn't even. I mean, I love Jeopardy, but <laughs> yeah. I it's not. You know, I just didn't end up watching it very much. So people started like calling me and, and asking me if that was me on the end. And I, I thought, well, it's just another little solo, but, you know, but I, they said, no, it's really, it's really a great solo. I, said, wow, <laughs> I better check it out. I lose, I lose. So, so it was, again, it was a situation where that was a blast because he just let me play. Yeah. You know, there was no, uh, there was no direction for it. I just, I went where the music took me, yeah. which is always the most satisfying experience as opposed to somebody, you know, b- backing up and saying, oh, no, why don't you try it this way? And, you know, no, that's not doing it. <laughs> so it's really great when you're in sync with the composer. Absolutely. Uh, we're about to wrap up, and I'm curious to know uh, what uh, what kind of projects, I, I, I guess you're off, you're, you're dark right now for the Barry Manilow show, so yeah. um, what are you working on now, and, and what uh, could we expect uh, in the future here, in the next, like, say, for the rest of the year, what do you have going on? Well, I've got uh, about three albums worth of material that I've written, because the last... You know, I did this, the album of Standards with Strings. Right. And, you know, and, and a couple other projects. So I've got maybe, and that was in 2000, so, uh-huh. and the, the trio record. So I've got, you know, the original music that I might revisit from the trio record in a larger ensemble. And then I've got, in addition, at least three albums worth of original material that I'm kind of org- in the process of organizing and seeing how I want to record them mm-hmm. and uh, what projects. So. I think go. I'm going to do another, uh, probably a five to seven piece band recording. Nice! Wow, that'll uh, be cool. And then I had done a, actually, I had a seven piece for a while that uh, we did a couple live gigs, and I just went back and listened to some of those, and there are some really worthy arrangements in their performances. So I'm going to try to get that band back together to do some recording. Very good. Well, we definitely want to stay in touch with you, and uh, yeah. as these as these projects progress, we can update our listeners, and maybe we can uh, hook up with you again down the road and do another interview. Yeah, that sounds great. Currently, uh, for more information, uh, people can visit you at brandonfields.com, I guess on your MySpace and also on Facebook, right? Yes. Well, cool. Hey, Brandon, uh, in case anyone, any of our listeners are interested in finding your music or your CDs, uh, where, where can they find it? CDbaby.com. Okay. Yeah, that's the best place. That's the source. All right. Very good. Well, Brandon, thanks so much for joining us on Inside Music Cast. Well, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate your time and, and good luck, and we'll catch up with you soon. Okay. Thanks, great. Brandon. Thanks, thanks Brandon. Bye. Special thanks to Brandon Fields for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Join us again on August 24th when Inside Music Cast welcomes Stephen Bishop. For more information about Inside Music Cast, check out our website at insidemusiccast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and MySpace. We'd love to hear from you, and we always take our listeners' input and suggestions into consideration. So drop us an email anytime at input at InsideMusicCast.com. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.